Chapter Six of the Privilege of Pain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Privilege of Pain by Carolyn Kane Mills Everett. Chapter Six: Physical Perfection and Its Relation to Civilization. I am persuaded that it is impossible to banish suffering from the world. All we have so far accomplished is to exchange one form of suffering for another. Take the case of women, for example, and the elements to which they are subject. Primitive woman was virtually free from these. She suffered little at childbirth. Today the operation of even the normal female functions has become a serious matter. Science, with all its strides, has not been able to cope successfully with the increasing burden which the conditions of modern life impose on woman's physique. I have chosen women as an illustration because they themselves would be the first to insist that they have profited more than men from the advance of thought and the perfecting of a social system that is largely their own creation. Well, compare this flower of the ages. As we see her in shops, offices, ballrooms, or even colleges, with an Australian bushwoman, and we will find that neither in health, strength, nor endurance can she rival her savage sister. The woman of the bush is capable of following her master all day with a baby on her back, of stopping for a brief period to produce another, and of resuming her progress, unimpeded by her additional burden. It is well to realize that civilization, which has bestowed such incalculable benefits upon mankind, has done so largely at the expense of its physical welfare. Moreover, as men, and more particularly women, rise in the intellectual scale, they risk the sacrifice not only of a robust, but of a normal body. But what of it? Wisdom is better than strength, and a wise man is better than a strong man. Nor must we forget that while civilization has undoubtedly undermined our physique, it has also abolished the circumstances which made strength and endurance the supreme necessities of the battle of life. To be able to follow her mail with a child on her back, to say nothing of the interesting interlude, is not a quality that would add either to the allurement or efficiency of the woman of today. Let me here cite four celebrated women who, differing from each other in every other particular, suffered in common from ill health. The first in order of time is Madame du Dufond, who was for many years the center of one of the most brilliant of the 18th century salons. Her correspondence with Voltaire La Duchesse Chaucille and Horace Walpole is immortal and has been frequently republished. Many of her letters to Voltaire and all of those to Madame de Chaucille and Horace Walpole were dictated when she was over sixty-seven years of age, broken in health and totally blind. Rachel was the daughter of a poor Jew peddler, and from the age of four she roamed the streets singing patriotic songs. A famous singing teacher heard her, and impressed by the crude power of the little creature, 
offered to teach her gratuitously. It is almost unbelievable to read of the excitement this small, plain Jewess created. She still lives in hundreds of books and is an integral part of the history of her period. If we can judge from contemporary praises, Rachel is the greatest actress of whom there is any record. She suffered from continual ill health and died of consumption in her thirty-seventh year. Grace Darling was the daughter of a lighthouse keeper, and with her father braved almost certain death in attempting to save the survivors of the wreck of the Forfarshire. By well-nigh superhuman efforts, they succeeded in rescuing a great number. This gallant exploit made them both famous. Grace Darling had always been delicate and died of consumption four years later. Florence Nightingale, immortal nurse and one of the most influential women in history, had at the time of her greatest activity a body so weak that it was a wonder how a woman in such delicate health was able to perform so much of what Sidney Herbert called a man's work. During many years of important achievement, she was altogether bedridden, working incessantly, writing, organizing. She was a power throughout the British Empire. Her influence has spread over the world. To her, we owe the first idea of training nurses. It is really curious that physical fitness should have become an ideal only after it had ceased to be the indispensable requirement of our environment. Piano moving is perhaps the sole occupation today where strength is the only qualification and intelligence of no account whatsoever. Yet few of us aspire to become piano movers. The body is a most delicate machine, and only in exceptional cases can it be kept through life in perfect condition without an immense expenditure of time and trouble. Now, a perfect body should only be considered desirable if it enables us to rise to greater heights of achievement. Countless people, however, regard health and vigor not merely as the means, but as the goal itself. They tend and exercise their bodies at the expense of every other form of activity. The disproportionate amount of time, energy, and aspiration that is wasted in attempting to perfect and preserve that which is inevitably doomed to destruction is incredible. A child building a castle on the sand is engaged in a more durable occupation. But the child, while erecting its tunneled and turreted fortress, is at least attempting to realize some haunting dream of the heights, the depths, the mystery and magnificence of life. What matter the tide? The vision is indestructible. The Greeks regarded a beautiful body as an end in itself, because their civilization, by permitting its unveiling, allowed it to act as an inspiration to others. The nude, however, has no recognized place among us, and although it still serves to create beauty, it does so under restricted and abnormal conditions. To be a model is not a title to fame nor the ideal of our most enlightened contemporaries. 
I hope that I have proved conclusively that a splendid body is no longer a necessary means of enabling us to rise to the greatest heights, either of ambition or of service. Why, therefore, should we so morbidly covet physical perfection? End of chapter 6 Recording by John Brandon